Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, <laughs> The Story. Yeah. Congratulations, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm with uh, Conrad Fisher. Uh, he's an incredible songwriter who was also nominated for Best Songwriter at the CPMAs the past few days. Yeah, and I'm glad I didn't get it, because Hunter deserved it this year, man. He works his tail off, and he blew up on TikTok this year, so I'm proud of Hunter and happy to know him, and he definitely deserved to get Songwriter of the Year. Absolutely. Hunter Rutten is an amazing person. He's got some really cool projects coming up. Um, I'm going to have him here in the studio not cool. too long, so nice. we'll get to know, learn more about that. Yeah. But today, I got you. Yeah, man. And you're an incredible person in your own right. This Pennsylvania-born singer and a songwriter grew up in a Mennonite household where his dad played Johnny Cash records and where the young Fisher learned how to love the harmonies of the church he attended. In 2018, Fisher went to Nashville to seek out his songwriting heroes like Roger Cook, Dickie Lee, Dallas Fraser, and Bill Anderson, among others. Still based in Pennsylvania, Fisher is an accomplished carpenter and spends his time in his workshop building things for his family and friends. Conrad, how are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah. Happy to be here. That that last part's actually a lie. I just quit my carpentry gig. The last carpentry gig I did was in August, so I don't have to do that no more. <laughs> Is that something you miss, or is that, is that a good thing? Well, I just do it for fun now, but um, no, I don't miss it because, well, like I have this song called Trouble with a Hammer. Um, I, I prefer not to swing a hammer. It's funner to swing a hammer when you don't have to. How's that? Yeah. So it's, it's like taking me a long time to be able to not have to do that. I shouldn't just do music all the time. Um, so I, should, I guess I need to update the old bio. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's back it up to the beginning. You were uh, born in the Mennonite household, where, and you said you listened to Johnny Cash. Is that where your love of music started, or I don't know where my love of music started, man. I mean, I don't remember not being able to play and sing. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in a Mennonite church. Well, I'm still Mennonite, man. I'm kind of ill-behaved, but <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm missing church today, and it's Palm Sunday. Uh, but no, because uh, but my my dad loved music and uh he doesn't play music but he, he johnny cash was one of his favorite artists and it was the one that like we weren't supposed to listen to instrumental music growing up because of the church we went to oh yeah man it's super conservative yeah you you may laugh and ask questions yeah i want to ask questions so so here at the bible college i, I know there are there, there's all the range of uh you shall not play music except for the Psalms or whatever. How, what is the Mennonite culture that you grew up in? Well, I mean, Mennonite is like saying, like there's a wide spectrum of it. But the what I grew up in was like pretty conservative. And and um, the church I was born in or where we were when I was a kid, um, didn't they weren't allowed to own musical instruments um, and absolutely no recorded um, music unless it was acapella. So, yeah, so I and I still go to church, but we don't have instruments in church. All our singing is acapella, and therefore we're really good singers. And <laughs> yeah, because you have to be. If you don't sing, it sucks. Yeah, right. You know? And I actually, it's one of my favorite parts about church is, is that. Like, I don't actually like, I don't like modern worship music. I shouldn't say that in this studio, but it's not, it's not my thing, right? I, I, you know, concert style worship is a little weird. Yeah, it's, it? yeah. It's, it's, it's fine. I mean, I, I know there's people called to that, and it's, it's, it's all good, but it's just not my, my thing. Um, but yeah, so I grew up, I grew up loving that kind of music. And then, uh, but Johnny Cash was always kind of like the exception to the rule. For some reason, we just always had a Johnny Cash CD. And even when we weren't really supposed to, and, um, yeah. And then we moved to a less, less conservative church, uh, that, that allowed us to have instruments and those kinds of things. 
when I was maybe six or seven, but still very conservative. You know, we weren't supposed to be professional musicians, um, that kind of thing. So I wasn't the bishop's favorite kid. <laughs> I'm still not. That's all right. So when did you uh, defy orders and pick up a guitar? I Well, my pop had a rule that before he bought you a guitar, you had to learn piano. And I think it was mm. just a thing of he wanted to make sure I was serious about something. You know how kids are like, oh, you know, I want to play the tuba. And then you get them a tuba and then they play it once and say, I don't want to play the tuba anymore. <laughs> so he was trying to avoid that. So I I played. I don't remember not being able to play piano. Like, so I don't know. I, I'd have to ask my mom, I guess. But I think it was, you know, four, five, six. I don't know. Because we had one of those little air organs, which we weren't supposed to have either. But <laughs> it was, do you know what I mean? That was an old, yeah, yeah. it was like a brand. I was like, nah, 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 nah. But anyways, so that's what I learned on. But I don't remember not being able to walk up to, uh, to a piano and pick out a tune. Um, but then, so I learned how to do that. And then my Uncle Henry gave me a um, my first real guitar. But that one had dry, two drywall screws stuck in the neck because it was cracked at the heel and half the strings were nylon because it couldn't stand the tension. And then, so I, I learned to play it on that. And then um, my dad, I think it was my 13th birthday. Um, my dad said, he came downstairs and he was like, what do you want for your birthday, man? And I said, I want a guitar. And like, not expecting to get it. Like, I was just like, I was just like, that's actually what I want. And he said, okay, let's go. And I lost my mind. We went to, Me- um, I think it was Menchie's Music. Is there Menchie's Music? Yes, yeah. Yep. Uh, anyway, so I got this black Fender, and that was my first real guitar. So that was, yeah. So I maybe started playing maybe when I was 12, playing guitar, which is my, I consider my main instrument now. Um, so, so what did you do with that? Did you uh, join the band or join the church as a worship singer? Or oh, what? no, dude. Um, I st- we didn't have worship church. I mean, we're like, no time, instruments. Right? Yeah. No, still not. I still go to a church oh, wow. where, where we sing a cappella on Sunday. So what'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> well, I my brother <laughs> my brother plays ba- or plays banjo and my sister plays uh, violin. And so we had we kind of played together and um I had a little my dad bought me a little recording setup and I had it in the tobacco barn. We have an old old tobacco barn on our on the property I grew up and so I had one quarter there and I had a little keyboard and uh, some jankity guitars and and so I s- started kind of making making music like that just for the fun of it. Um, some real garbage, some real garbage recordings, but it's uh, it was fun. And I remember it used to be so cold up there in the winter time. I had to have a heater because it wasn't insulated. It's just you know, tobacco barns are meant to move air through right, to dry right. tobacco. So it was <laughs> cold, and I would play keyboard. You know, with a coat on and a heater blowing at me, and anyways, um, so that's how that's how creatively I express myself. You know, at that age, you can just go down a rabbit hole if you if you're, you know, playing music by yourself. Um, and there were a couple of local bands that wanted me to be musicians, but my dad didn't think it was a great idea for me to be on stage. You know, at that age, which I hated him for at the time. Um, but in retrospect, it was like, yeah, and it's a, human beings are not made to be on stage. It's the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's like, I don't think. I mean, to ha- to stand in front of a thousand people and have them clap for you is not healthy. I don't care how used to it you mm. get. I don't think it is, and especially when you're 16. You sh- and you show me a sane 16 year old, anyways. Right, you know right, I mean? of course. It's yes. like your brain's developing. <laughs> 
and this is not smart. Um, and I was that that ticked me off, man. I I I didn't hate my dad for that, but it was um, hold it against him. I I was a little bit like, come on, man. Um, but he and then when I was about, I guess it was about eighteen, seventeen or eighteen. Um, he did he did let me join a, a local band because um, they were good guys, and yeah, that's that's when I started playing out. So uh, let's go back to the Mennonite. Do you know exactly why, like the theology behind the no instruments in the church? I mean, some of that stuff is just cultural, uh, and it's just oh, okay. they just should be Medin. You know, that's just how we do. That's just the way it is. And there's not really a. Uh, I mean, they'd have scripture for it, um, but then it's like really. I'm always like, you know, David was playing the harp and the lyre, and you know, right. Exa- yeah. It's kind of hard to, um, but it's just it's. Just the no. way it is. Yeah, it's just the way it is. And by the way, as we go through this, uh, some people are scared to ask Mennonite questions or whatever, and you don't have to be. I mean, I'll. It's not really a sensitive topic for me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I like, you don't, if, you don't if, seem very bashful. No, I'm just I saying, I, cut loose. Yeah, <laughs> we can talk. I will say, if, if anyone has a question about it, feel free to put it in the comments. We'll get around to it. Because uh, sure, I. I, I it's, listen, if you if you say that you're a Mennonite, I I hope you'd be willing to answer some questions about it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yep. So uh, you you started this band. What what band did you start uh, or join in as an 18 year old? Uh, it was a band called Forward Son, and it was it was a bunch of um a bunch of older guys. Well, not older guys, but in their 40s, um, and they were all either Mennonite or Mennonite adjacent. So what it meant is what, <laughs> but it, it is a big distinction because it, it's a lot different. It's a lot different. It was a lot different for me coming up than it was for like some of the other guys in the scene, like, like John Rossi or Hunter Root or Kevin Cole, some of these other musicians in this area, because I got really fortunate in the fact that whenever my band played, just because we were in that culture, mm. there'd be 500 people show up just because there was something going on, not necessarily because we were good because Lord knows we weren't, but it was just, there was something going on and we were what's going on. And so then there was a bunch of people. And so you get kind of spoiled. Cause I never had to, I never had to sweat it out at the Abbey bar, you know, for three hours, get making 50 bucks or whatever. Um, and it, I never had to be part of the, um, cause I still hate the bar culture, just the loud, nobody's listening yeah it wasn't like that in you know my first band experiences and because of again because of being in the mennonite thing we would get asked to go to like ohio and indiana Mm. and travel some so i got some experience like on the road really before i had the talent to back it up but but because you're a part of that network and community um it gave me those opportunities so were you writing songs at that time, or were you yeah, playing? very poorly. You know, I was writing them, um, some bad songs, some some stuff that's kind of still decent. But yeah, I was writing not not on the, um, not as seriously. I wasn't approaching it as seriously as I as I do now. Back then, it was like if I got an idea, I wrote it, mm. and um, now I like I write whether I have an idea or not because that's how you get good. You know what mm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, cause if you wait for inspiration to strike, um, either it just won't strike or you'll get an idea and then your pen won't be sharp enough to get it down. Like I feel mm. like you, you have to write, even if you don't have anything to write about, and even if it's a garbage song, fine, you just don't show it to anybody. And then when you get a good idea, then you're, then you're 
brain's ready to write. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, just like anything, writing is a skill. You yeah. Have to, you have to write all your bad ideas first to get a good one. Yeah. Yeah, the trick is just knowing which ones. That's right. Knowing which ones are bad. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> Being exactly self-aware right. enough to be like, yeah, it was garbage, man. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at what point did you uh, – so you did that. What next for you? Well, um, so I'm, I – I moved out. I, moved, I grew up in Lancaster County, and I I moved out of the area. I bought some land when I was eighteen. I bought about ten acres in Juniata County because I wanted to. Eighteen, you bought ten acres of land. Yeah, I didn't cash it off, but I had a buddy that had ten acres, and he he financed it for me. And I was like, and and probably one of the kindest things anybody's ever done for me because he literally, I mean, he signed the deed over to me and said, "Yeah, pay me every month." And cool. So anyway, so I bought 10 acres in Juniata County, which is where I live now. I'm not on that property, but so I moved out of the area and um and that was when I was 18. Or, or no, I moved out of the area when I was 20 and married my wife Beth, uh, who I met in Juniata County when I was like 21. And at that point, I was like, I was really wanting to be uh I was a carpenter, um, but really wanting to be a full-time musician. And so um Beth really started helping me think she really believes in me more than I did at that point. And so she said, you got to start thinking of yourself as a musician who's working as a carpenter, not a carpenter who wants to be a musician. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a really simple thing, but that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah. And so then ever after that, I was just like, okay, so how can I do this? Um, and then the the natural step forward seemed to be like, you know, go where people are making music. Um, and so my first, what I, my original goal was to be an audio engineer. Cause at that point I didn't think I was good enough to be a songwriter or an artist. I was like, yeah, I'm okay. But so I was like, well, I could, I can sit behind the knobs, you know, I could turn, you know, I could be in the studio just to be around it. Um, so I was going to go to Belmont, uh, university, uh, to get an audio engineering degree. So I did gen some gen eds at uh, Penn State campus in Lewistown and online some um, in preparation. And then we toured the Belmont campus and we were like, cool, yeah, tuition's like eh, 50 grand a year or something. And that was six, seven years ago. It's probably another up, time up, and up, a half. Yep. Yeah. And then I had some friends that were like, dude, you know, it's really not necessary. And, you know, you'll become a sound engineer and then you won't be working on the white album every day. It's going to be a lot of garbage um, or at least stuff you don't enjoy. And so I got talked out of that um, uh, and just moved to town to learn to write songs because you don't need a degree to write songs. You just can't suck. You just have to be able to write songs. <laughs> <laughs> and I can do that, man. You know. So at what point did you uh, really break through in your songwriting technique? Uh, I, I don't think I ever have yet. No, not really. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. Well, I I did this writers workshop that kind of that kind of changed things for me. Um, there was a there was a um, an old gospel. If you're into gospel music, there's a a, a powerhouse writer. It's a, a lady named Dottie Rambo. Fucking Dottie Rambo. She and this is old school. This is like 50s, 60s. Anyways, her daughter Reba had a songwriters workshop. She was doing at her house and um just help me approach songwriting more as as a craft instead of something that just happens like mm. being able to like we did exercise like we would each take us a, a, a home depot 
color swatch and write a song based on the color. Like what you look at that thing and either maybe the name or the color itself or whatever, being able to pull inspirations from like weird, weird places and um, learning how to actually work on being a songwriter. Um, and that was in, that was in 2017, I guess. Yeah. 2016, I think 2017. And, and that, that's when I got started getting really good because I was doing it, you know, because, you know, instead of because I hear a lot of songwriters and if I apologize if you're a songwriter listening to this and this is your process. But a lot of songwriters will say, oh, it'll just hit me. You know, I just have to wait till something hits me. And I'm like, dude, if you wait till something hits you, you're never going to write anything worth hearing most of the time because it's like you're not working on it hard enough for that idea. to come. The idea might be great, but the craft won't be there and you'll get in the way of your idea. Mm. Um, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever that means. So, uh, and around that time when you went to uh, Nashville and got, got in the loop a little bit over there. Yeah. I, that was 2018 new year's day. Okay. That's a crazy story. So I, I was a carpenter and I was like, I want to move to Nashville, but I, I was also aware of how, just how very cliche that is. And so I was like, well, to make it a little less cliche, I'm going to refuse to be, I'm not going to wait tables and I'm not going to be a carpenter. If I move to Nashville, I'm going to do something that I could only do in Nashville so that if I'm a failure as a songwriter, I can at least have this experience of whatever. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to try to get a job at the Grand Ole Opry, um, like as a janitor or a ticket guy or just, you know, just something, just something. So in November, before I moved down, um, I got in touch with a manager. I applied for a job. I got in touch with a manager down there. And he was like, yeah, man, I've got a job for you. I think it was like a a groundskeeper of some kind, like garbage man or something, something really jankety. But it was like, it didn't matter because I was like, I'll get in there. And then the manager will like me and I'll move up and it'll be mm -hmm. fine. So he's like, yeah, call me when you roll into town and I'll, I'll get you started. Um, so I loaded up my stuff. Um, and we, we, we moved down and the day after I moved in, I called the manager and I said, Hey man, uh, my name's Conrad. And, and we talked in November and I'm ready to start working. And he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Conrad. I'm ready to start working. He said, I don't remember you at all. So I was in Nashville and had no job and like devastated because I was excited about having a job at the Opry. So, uh, one of my friends an older lady that lived down there, one of my only friends, the only one of two people that I knew in town, she worked at a funeral home. And so I was like, well, you know, could you get me a job there? And she said, sure. So she got me an interview um, and they paid me 10 bucks an hour. And worst job I ever had by far. And, and I was doing like janitor work. I would clean the hearses, fuel the hearses, um deliver death certificates from like the doctor from from the from the okay so the funeral home would initiate a death certificate and take it to the doctor to be signed and then you'd have to take it to the department of health to get and believe it or not that's one of the most important things a funeral home does because people get scrappy about a death certificate cuz to split up the money you've got to have the death certificate yep. So if a fight breaks out, they've had to call the cops to the funeral home, and it's usually about 
an estate dispute. I mean, that stuff happens. Anyway, so I was doing that and taking bodies to the crematorium, um, like loading them up in a, in a sprinter van in cardboard boxes and taking them to the crematorium to be burned for 10 bucks an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and looking back, I was like, I don't, I don't know what, in, what drove me, um, like why I put up with that kind of treatment. Cause it was a wealthy, it was a wealthy funeral home. I don't know why I tolerated it, but I did. Um, and my wife got a job at, um, she's a registered nurse. She got a, a job at the hospital in Franklin Williamson Memorial hospital. Um, and so that helped with, as far as income went, but yeah, it was kind of brutal. So then I just struggled around and, and, and this was pre COVID. So to meet songwriters, I would just go to, I mean, there's a hit songwriter on every corner in, in Tennessee. Go yeah. to Broadway, you'll find, you'll find well, 50. Not, weirdly enough, Broadway is like not kind of like a horrible – I mean, it's not horrible. If you want to get drunk and listen to some honky tonks, it's, it's great. But the, <laughs> the, guys I, the guys I was seeking out, because I'm kind of an old soul, were the older the older writers, and they're not on Broadway. But they, they do rounds, you know, songwriter rounds, all over the place down there. Um, and so you could meet – hall of famers just by going to their shows and and they'd talk to you and meet with you and and hang out with you and so that's how i kind of got in the loop and so what'd you do then you got you got you went around to these songwriting rounds and uh somewhere someone met you and said hey look at this guy yeah so the first the the first guy i met in town kind of was it was a guy named fred noblock and um i met him through it's gonna be a lot of names that really don't matter but i went to the <laughs> The Bluebird Cafe. Have you heard of the Bluebird Cafe? I have not. Okay, it's like this songwriters cafe where where a lot of people like. It's a, it's a really famous listening room in Tennessee where really great songwriters play their stuff, and so that's a place I try to hang out as much as possible. And I met a guy named there named Don Schlitz, and Don Schlitz wrote, um, "If you're a country music fan, is I'm gonna love you forever." Uh, forever and ever amen or um you got to know when to hold them <laughs> know when to fold you know that one yeah, yeah. yeah so he's that guy don schlitz and jelly roll johnson they were playing the the bluebird and they introduced me to a songwriter named fred noblock and fred noblock was is another hit songwriter but he was doing song critiques so you take 20 songs to him and he'll say well this is too short this is too long this sucks this course is bad <laughs> Really, he's a real curmudgeon, but he's very good at what he does. Curmudgeon. Curmudgeon, yeah. That's a five dollar word. Yeah, it is a five dollar <laughs> word. And, but he he anyway, so he was like, he told me, he's like, You're not Nashvilleized yet. You're you're still kind of creative. He's like, um, and so so um I started writing with him and um then the the I was listening to a podcast uh, called uh, Spotlight on uh, uh, Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters and there was a guest there named Dickie Lee, and he just sounded really cool. And Dickie um, Dickie wrote the song for George Jones. She thinks I still care, uh, which was like a massive hit for George Jones, and then it was a massive hit for Anne Murray, and then Elvis cut it. It was like number one three times in the sixties, and and he's got a he's got a bunch of hits. I think eight or eight number ones and maybe 20 top tens, something like that. Um, and so Fred introduced me to Dickie and then Dickie Lee, he's like, he was about 83 at the time. Um, and we 
hit it off right from the beginning. We started writing together. And Dickie, even if he wasn't current in the um in other words, he wasn't he's not writing hits that you hear on the radio now, but he he was still able he's still very well connected. Like he one day he called um Universal, like the <laughs> Universal. And he's like, There's this kid, you got, you know, can he come and play some songs? And I didn't get the deal with Universal, but it was still like he would do stuff like that for me, even if he wasn't like current, he still had those strings where he could call right, people yeah. there and, and help you out. Yeah, and then it's just one thing leads to the next. Dickie introduced me to Roger Cook, and Roger wrote like, um, I'd like to teach the world to sing Perfect Harmony, that old Coke commercial. Um, Long, cool woman in a black dress. <laughs> yeah. So, and then and then it's just like anything else, dude. It's just like, if people, if you're not a jerk, and people like you and you perform well and, and, and do your job, they'll be like, oh, man, you should meet my friend, whatever. Um, and so I kind of got into that, that got to be friends with some of these older guys um, whose songs I, I grew up um, listening to. And it's kind of crazy because some of these guys are in their 80s, 70s and 80s and are more accessible than I thought they'd be because a lot of younger guys don't give a rip. I mean, some people mm. do, but there's not a lot of 25 year olds knocking down, um, you know, Dickie Lee's door or Bob McDill or Roger or these these older guys because they just don't care. And but that's the music I like, and so those are the people I sought out. So once I got the first in the in the once I got my foot in the door and made two friends, then all you got to do is ask them, hey, do you have you know this guy's number or that guy's number? And they'll give it to you and they'll say, hey, well I'll just call it call him for you. We can go out for breakfast, and then it's they'll help you network. If you, but you just gotta not suck the whole time. It's like you got if when if you get to write with those guys, you have to show up with a good idea, and you have to, um, just like literally every other job, just you know, do your job and do it well, and and show up. You know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Luck is just preparedness meets opportunity. Yeah. 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 So what all came out of that? You you did a record. Yeah, I mean, I I had a couple false starts. Um, as far as that goes, like, um, I mean, the weird thing about Nashville is there's there's a lot of people. Um, not yeah, there's a lot of sharks, but there's even just good people looking for, just like there's artists looking for a break. There's there's publishers and labels mm. and and um, managers and stuff like that looking for the next big thing. And what I think a lot of artists forget when they're in that position is that a manager needs a good artist way more than an artist needs a good manager. Mm -hmm. And we get desperate and sign any contract that comes along. And then you get into these things where they own you for life or it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever the deal is. So there was a couple of weird, you know, kind of full starts and um, whatever, but just, um, you just you the longer you're there, the more your network builds, and you just keep showing up and doing your job, and people will people will come and and um and catch your vision and and want to work with you and those kinds of things. And that's how I met. Um, I mean, I got a publishing deal, and it's 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 too many names in a row. Like the network from the first guy that I met in Nashville to my publisher, maybe has. 10 people at least in there. This guy introduced me to this guy, 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 who introduced me to my publisher. Um, and yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just a lot of hard work. 
Oh, that's great. I mean, because it just goes to show that how how you know how willing you have to be, or how de- uh, not desperate, how persistent. Uh, yeah, you, have de- to be. you can say desperate. Can... You can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, dude, I don't know. If you... I mean, it's like I feel like being a songwriter or a musician is almost like a sickness because it's like you're just not happy doing anything else. And sometimes I felt really stupid about that. It's like, well, why? Like, I should just behave myself and go build cabinets, or just why do you have to? But it's just, I'm just not happy doing anything else. I just get bored. And so, um, didn't really have a plan B. I just, I just want to be successful doing this. And when it's an, when, when the craft is an end in itself, your, your chances of succeeding are much higher. In other words, yeah, it's fun getting paid now to play music, but I'd be playing music whether or not I get paid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cause it's just fun. And it's that difficult that it has to be that way or you won't be successful. Right. So we have a few of your uh, demos here that you you later gave to other musicians. Tell me a little bit about that um, with the wild flower. Play the wild flower. Play the wild flower. Yeah. Okay. Well, can we start with "Living Left" to do? I don't think we have. Oh, that's fine. Okay, that, that's okay. Um, so the uh, my publisher is a guy named Matt Lindsay and his partner in business Jeff Gordon. But Matt Matt started. I, I was playing at the station in one night. Um and sitting in with with Jim Rooney and the Irregulars, and he heard me, and he wanted to work with me. And so he pitched a song of mine uh, called Live and Left to Do to a, a bluegrass band called Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers. And I don't know if this is interesting to anybody, but like when you pitch in songs, it's like the artists and the publisher and the songwriters, the artists typically go to publishers looking for songs, and a publisher might have five to 50 writers, depending on if you're like a boutique company or Sony. So when you get a publishing deal, it just means that you're digging with a shovel now instead of your bare hands. It's like your publisher knows who's cutting, who's recording, and what they're looking for so you can pitch intelligently. So Matt Lindsay started pitching my song, started working my material. And and so he got he got one of my songs cut uh, with Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers, and it went to number one. It was like number one on the Bluegrass Gospel charts for maybe four weeks. And so that kind of like, Kind of got my foot in the door. Now people actually open my emails and like, mm. I mean, I'm not, because it's really hard to get people to listen to your songs if you have nothing. You know what I mean? It's really difficult. So anyway, so that it's the same band that cut Live and Left to Do is cut this next song you're gonna play, uh, play the Wildwood Flower, and this just this just came out on the 17th of March, um, and I wrote this song about an Amish couple. There was a, a studio, uh, I, I I do studio work. Um, record people for part of my living and i had a client who told me that his mom married his dad because his dad could play the wildwood flower on the guitar and i was like man if that don't sound like a country song and for those of you who don't know wildwood flower is like a classic carter family instrumental if you're in like bluegrass or country music that's the first song you learn how to pick on the guitar mm-hmm. um anyway so i wrote this song and i sent it to joe mullins uh, because he knew me already because he had had a hit with one of my previous songs and he he put it on hold and recorded it and we'll see what it does. I'm hoping they single it and it goes number one because I really like the song, uh, but it's kind of too early to tell because it just came out. <laughs> but so this is the demo that I sent to Joe. And then if you all go on YouTube where it's, it's playing on the radio now in Sir- uh, Bluegrass Junction, but um, you can look it up and find their version online. So this is Conrad Fisher's Play the wildwood flower.
Sunday and he loved her from the start. She lived on the mountain where the wind was always blowing. But 20 miles a mountain road don't matter to the heart. And every night he asked politely, Is there anything that'll make you smile? And every time she whispers softly, Oh my darling, play the wildwood flower. spring as soon as they were able making plans to build a home as soon as they could start he kept a fire in hearth and food upon the table 50 years or more they never spent a day apart and every night he does politely is there anything that'll make you smile and upon her face Cause every night he does politely Is there anything that'll make you smile And every time she whispers softly Oh my darling Play the wildwood flower That was Conan Fisher's demo of Play the Wildwood Flower. Yeah, man. So you also uh, went and wrote original music that you put out as yourself. Yeah. And so tell me what that was like. What it was like recording it or what? Uh, yes, but before I get that, I want to I want to ask a question. What's the difference between you writing a song for someone else and writing a song for yourself? As far as the actual doing it or like the, the, the psychology of it or, or the money or, or what do you mean? All of it. All of it. Well, I mean, there's okay. So, so that's a good question. It's really difficult because I don't. I I found kind of like a lane in bluegrass music, um, because country music these days is is not really my thing either. And so, um, when you, well, I have to think through how I want to answer this. It's like. It, if you're writing for a specific artist, you just kind of you you kind of a, approach an idea a certain way because like okay, Morgan Wallen is is in, is not going to sing a song like "Play the Wildwood Flowers." It's right. not going to happen. So if you get a tip that Morgan Wallen is is looking for a song about you know tailgates and girls, like you're going to obviously have to approach that differently 
were not approached at all in my case. Um, so there's this, there's like this, this, this battle of like, do I, do I write stuff that's, that I think is good art and that I would sing, or do I want to write something that I think could get cut? Mm -hmm. um, and so in bluegrass, I feel like that intersects more often than, than on like country radio right now. And it kind of sucks because like I, I really want to be in the country market, but I'm not willing to write drivel or I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not like, like, I'm just not going to write. And the crazy thing is sometimes a great song sneaks through like, um, you know, Flower Shops by Ernest or um, The House That Built Me from, you know, maybe about a decade ago. But I guess the difference is, is sometimes when I'm writing, I have an idea um, that I know nobody else is going to want, but that I'll be able to sell. Like I've got a song called Being Human. Um, Falling in love, falling apart, losing your mind, breaking your heart. There's nothing to fear. It's just kind of weird being human. And that's not, that's not, nobody can pull that off, but Conrad Fisher, you know what I mean? You're, right, not, gonna right. put, you're not gonna pitch that to nobody, but it's, I still think it's good. Um, so, like, you just kind of have to, I usually kind of know when I'm writing the idea if this is something that I'm gonna be able to pitch or if it's something up that I'm gonna want for me. And sometimes the trap you fall into as a, as a songwriter is, Sometimes you end up writing too much for other people. You know, you, you try mm -hmm. to write too much for the pitch and you kind of lose the purity of it. Um, and like Play the Wildwood Flower, that song I just wrote, that was for me. I mean, I I, I knew I could pitch that after I wrote it, but I was writing that for me. Um, but then it just so happened that it's like, oh, this might work for someone else. And I feel like that's when you get the best stuff is when you're writing for you, but then it also happens that you could pitch it to somebody else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then, like, I just had a situation where, where you know, my artist, my my publisher gave me a tip on on an artist who's cutting, which I don't think I better say it publicly yet. But they gave me a topic that they were writing that they wanted to sing about and who the artist was. I wrote a song, we pitched it the next day, and they put it on hold, like within 24 hours of the song being written. So, like, staying, you know. But that that happens really rarely. But you know, I still want to be able to. I still want to be able to um, to do that. So I don't know if that answers the question or not. But it's something I I kind of struggle with a little bit, trying to not to lose, trying not to lose focus. Like it's kind of easy as a songwriter to just try to write to get cuts, mm -hmm. and I feel like you can really kind of hijack yourself um, when you when you do that. So tell me about Trouble with the Hammer. Oh yeah, I wrote that because I mean. Um, that was me being mad that I had to swing a hammer to to make a living. It's like, you know, I was, I was, um, I, cause I had promised myself when I moved to Tennessee that I wasn't going to be a carpenter. Cause I was like, I can be a carpenter in, in anywhere. Pennsylvania, anywhere. And in, in Nashville, it's like, I didn't know the guys at the hardware store or the bank, or it's just so much harder when you don't have that network. And it was just kind of a pride thing. I was like, no, man, I ain't going to be a carpenter. But I found myself, cause I had never sold my, I have a, a little a, a, a property in Pennsylvania. So I was, I was paying two mortgages and that's hard to do. You know, even if your wife is a nurse on 10 bucks an hour. So I had to do something that paid well. Um, and so that song was like, I mean, the first verse is, you know, don't have trouble with a hammer or a 50 hour week. I can swing them both if I need to, but I've been working every day and walking in my sleep. And lately it's been wearing me down. It's like, yeah, every word of that's true. Cause I was working all day and then I'd need to go to a gig to try to network with publishers and songwriters and musicians. And just, just then the chorus is just like expressing that, like, I don't actually want to get rich. I just want to like do what I love for a living. You know, it's like, I, I don't, 
I don't really want a Cadillac. Like, I, as far as material things go, I have everything. You know, I could waste money on a like a you know fifty five Cadillac or something stupid, but I don't actually have things that I that I I don't want a Maserati. Like, I just actually don't want one. I don't want a gold watch. Like, what are you gonna do with that? Like, I don't. I have. <laughs> got what you need. <laughs> yeah, I got what I need. But I just man, it'd be nice to not be swinging a hammer. So that's what the song's about. And this is the musical music video of yours. Yeah. So the audio, I should have just sent you the MP3 of the actual thing. But if y'all can check out the um, the music video, we had fun. We shot that at my farm. My neighbor, my neighbor Mike, lent me his. I think it's a '56 Cadillac. It's '50s something. And then my other neighbor lent me his uh, his Farmall Cub, and we shot we shot a video with my lot with my band um, in my backfield. So check it out on YouTube. But this is the audio, I guess. One, two, three, four, one. Don't have trouble with a hammer or a 50-hour week Oh, I can swing them both if I need to But I've been working every day and walking in my sleep And lately it's been wearing me down I don't want to live high in the Beverly Hills But I hope I get to visit them someday I don't need a lot of money, don't buy my thrills I just want to live life my way I just want to live life my way Well, I hate to complain or get down in the mouth But I surely could use a vacation I'm gonna pack up my bags, gonna point the car south I'll see ya when I see you around I don't wanna live high in the Beverly Hills But I hope I get to visit them someday I don't need a lot of money, don't buy my pills I just wanna live life my way I just wanna live life my way I'm gonna see Time somewhere sunny, I can slow it down. I don't wanna live high in the Beverly Hills, but I hope I get to visit them someday. I don't need a lot of money, don't buy my thrills. I just wanna live life. I don't wanna live high in the Beverly Hills, but I hope I get to visit them someday. I don't. Trouble with a hammer by Conrad Fisher. What a, what a, what a great song! Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, so uh, recently, and it was really funny. Uh, I said it beforehand. Why, why own a Cadillac when you can borrow one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you just acquired a a great venue. Let's talk about that. Yeah, man. Um, so 
I live in Juniata County, which is, is like about an hour from Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. And I was had having breakfast with a with a songwriter friend of mine, another great talent uh, named Willie Markley, who lives lives close to me. And he's like, "Man, do you see the McCoysville Presbyterian Church is for sale?" And I was like, "What?" So I I I went and checked it out. And it's it's absolutely stunning, man. It was like um, built in 1871. I don't know what what the height is at its peak, but it's probably it's at least 50, 40, 50, probably 50 feet. You know, it's 20 or 20 foot ceilings and two stories. Um, and I was like, man, it had been on the market for 60 days and didn't seem like anybody was really interested in it. And um, I had I had been kind of needing a studio space away from the house. I have a one-year-old, or he's one and a half now, but at the time he was about one. And it's getting difficult to have clients at my house studio and just kind of unprofessional, honestly, because... Mm-hmm. And harder on my wife because, you know, she has to keep the baby quiet and all that. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's hard and it's not necessary. Anyway, so I started looking into it. And at first it was like kind of like an impossibility. Like, you know, there's, I mean, I can't swing this. Um, But I just started dreaming and, and walking towards it. And I ended up being able to buy it in, in November of 2022. Um, the, the congregation itself started in 1773. Wow. Yeah, and it was down the road um because I have I have an acre and a half there with this building and it's all flat and no graveyard because they started first they were in open air and the the uh it was a circuit riding preacher named William Logan um started this church and they what I understand he had a little tent to stand under and they drug logs out of the woods to sit on um and then they did that for about eight years, which is shocking to me because you can hardly pay people to go to church anymore. And these people right. are like these are know, dedicated, dedicated Scots Irish settlers, yeah. Um, and so then they built a log cabin and in 1801, I think it was, and were in that till about 1836. And then they built a frame church, and that burnt down around the time of the Civil War. Uh, and so then in 1871, they moved the church into town into McCoysville, which was then a thriving. A thriving town had a mill and um, a couple of stores, a doctor, a post office. I mean, it was, you know, quintessential small town America. Yeah. And I mean, it it cost them $10,000 to build it in 1871. And I've got some pictures uh, from the 20s, which had been their 50th anniversary, where it's like, it's about 150 people out front of this church. I mean, it's it's crazy, the legacy that that place has. Um, And there were... There were still people meeting in there when I bought it. The same congregation. It was. It was their last Sunday was Sunday, November twentieth, and I bought it on the twenty first. Mm. Um, there was about eight people uh, still attending, and it was just older folks, and it was just getting to be too much for them to to keep up. Um, so I told them what my vision was for the place and uh, what I wanted to do down there, and they were excited about it and happy that you know someone was coming in and wanting to do something like that with it. Cause it's, you know, McCoysville, Mifflin town, Juniata County, it's not a depressed area, but it's, 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 um, there's not a lot, not a whole lot of opportunities, uh, as far as, you know, other than some blue collar jobs, there's, you know, you're not gonna, it's, it's just, it's a difficult place for a young person to grab, grab a hold and, and do something. Yeah. To really do something. I mean, like <clears throat> the closest theater, 
think from my house, like movie theater, um, it's at least 45 minutes. No. You know, the my the closest Walmart is about a half hour. Wow. Um, but we are right off 322. So it's like it's it's so you it's, can go places. Yeah, you can go places. And it's not and and honestly, it's beautiful enough that I don't mind the drive. Um but but as far as that goes, it allowed me to get the building at a at a price that I could manage. And um yeah, so I have my the 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 sanctuary is on the second floor. Um and it's got the old pews. It was gorgeous. It's it's if you see pictures of it, it's it's exactly as pretty as the pictures. And then the first floor, when you go right in the door, is like the community hall, which I now have my studio down there. And then uh, I put a shower, and I'm I have a, a a wood stove, and I have a a bed. I didn't build a bedroom yet, but that's my next project probably this month, just to to frame up a, a bedroom so there's some privacy because I have clients from out of state. Indiana. Well, Dickie Lee was actually my first client, man. He was from <laughs> up from he's a Hall of Famer, man. I was like, yeah, this is cool. He he wrote a song with Keith Whitley, which if you're into into bluegrass or country, that means something to you. But um, he wrote a song with Keith Whitley that they had never done a really good demo on. And he's like, Man, I'm gonna bring this up and do a demo for me. I was like, Yeah, man. So that was my first client, and um, and I have guys from South Carolina or Indiana or Ohio or just even if it's three or four hours away, it's just nice for someone to be able to crash there. And the vibe is really cool, man. I mean, it's like, it's an old church and, and a big uh, functional, you know, kitchen and I have coffee and snacks and a big fridge. And it's just, it's fun to be there. And so just to check out and, you know, go down the rabbit hole with some music for a couple of days. I think people like that um, to just immerse themselves in it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what are some of the big events that you're excited for for that? Uh, it's called Ragamuffin Hall. Yeah, Ragamuffin Hall. Why Ragamuffin Hall? Well, a, a lot of my friends, a lot of my friends are are um, strange, uh, <laughs> weird, kind of ragamuffin characters, and I, I just want that place to be some. Uh, I want the hall uh, to be a place where everybody feels welcomed. Um, in spite of their not not only in spite of their quirks, but because of their quirks. Um, and and one of the one of the chiefest of the ragamuffins, the original ragamuffin, was a, a buddy of mine named Malachi Martin. Uh, and he he was just one of those guys. He grew up in a situation similar to me in a conservative church, and um, went off the deep end a little bit, and world traveler, and and you know, kind of got crazy. Um. And he's kind of the the patron saint of Ragamuffin Hall, and he died on a on a motorcycle wreck uh, last summer. Not far. This is actually his his necklace. I wear this everywhere I go um, in his memory. But he died in a, in a motorcycle wreck right by my house um, last summer. And so it's like it's these people on the fringes that I want that uh, I hope they feel welcome uh, at the hall. That's why I named it. That's why I named it that. Forget what the question was. That the question? Uh, that was the follow-up question. But the the oh, first dude. question I asked was, uh, "What events are you excited for to put oh, on there?" Yeah. So, well, just for to to start off, we've been having, um, hymn sings. We actually just had one last night where, mm -hmm. um, it's just nothing fancy, but I brew a pot of coffee and people bring cookies and we sing we sing hymns. Uh, I lead lead from the front. It's not a show. It's just we just 
get him books. Yeah. Um, but the first big event, and and this is actually the, I guess the first time this is actually public publicly publicized. The Malpas brothers are coming in July twenty eighth, and they're they're a, um like a classic country duo, and they recorded one of my songs. Me and Dickie Lee and Chris Malpas wrote a song they have on their upcoming record. So I've gotten to be kind of friends with them, and they're they're going to be like the first uh, big artist. Uh, to be in there. They were just on the Grand Ole Opry uh, last week, I think. Um, and they're really popular in my neck of the woods. And, like, country is all get out. Like, like where you see them, you see a video of them, and you're like, is that a shtick, or are they actually that country? <laughs> and it's like, no, they're actually more country than that. You know, it's like, but um, they're really cool. And so I'm really excited to have have them there. Um, tickets are on sale uh, at, on my, on the website is theragamuffinhall.com. Tickets are on sale right now. I've been selling them privately because um, I wanted the neighbors. It, well, the, the show will sell out, uh, and I've been selling, making sure the neighbors and and community. the community yeah. has first chance. Yeah, so I've been selling them at, at the Hymn Sings, and everybody that knows me will, knows to come to me for a ticket, word of mouth or whatever. So I've sold a, a good handful of them. Um, I want a ticket. You want a ticket? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so um, they're they're on sale at theragamuffinhall.com right now, and it's it's all still um, you know I I don't know what I'm doing honestly as far as like running a venue or or any of this I just know what I like and um I want to bring that to to the community and so the other thing that that's been really cool is like the Malpas brothers for instance has a has their um a booking fee like okay i want to get high quality acts in and high quality acts usually have high quality booking fees but what i've discovered is there's local businesses that believe in the same things i do and are willing to to for the good of the community help out yeah so the sponsors for the for the malpas brothers on july 28th are bk kaufman construction and juniata concrete uh both companies that i've worked with or or know the owners and they were like hey let's make this happen and 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 helped helped with the cost um but yeah i mean because you got to think about i can see see like 180 people in there and so you know an, a, a typical band if they're like a you know a nationally touring band or whatever their booking fee is going to be anywhere from five to twenty thousand and to make that work in mccoysville out of 180 seats you start doing the math and it's like Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a but, project. yeah, it's a project, but, um, so it, it's, I'm, I'm learning, man. And I'm just kind of one step at a time. The cool thing is, is that, you know, the venue can be a little bit experimental for me. It's not like my, my grocery, my groceries are coming from the venue bit of it. I do full-time studio work. And so I, I can afford to experiment a little bit with the venue side of things. And I don't have to be, you know, um, really worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good. Yeah. So we're, we're going to go into a time of uh, random questions that, not random, I, I, I wrote all these out for all the artists that I have on. Okay. Um, but one thing, you, you mentioned something earlier uh, that, caught, that caught me, and it's the, the ego thing. Yeah. You think it's bad for people, and yet here you are as a singer-songwriter, uh, sometimes performing in uh, these big areas. How do you deal with that? Oh, but good question. Yeah, I think it's bad. I I, I, mean, I could be wrong on this. I'm not a psychologist, but I don't think human beings are made to stand in front of other human human beings and be clapped at. 
Like for you to like stand. Worshipped. Yeah, I guess you could call it that. Like I, I don't think it's a healthy thing for for a thousand people to be clapping for people on stage. Like that's I don't think we're meant our brains aren't meant to handle that. I don't think they are. And so it's like, um, so now what's the question? How do you How do deal I... with that as a singer, songwriter, performer? Well, part part of it um is just like I know <laughs> I'm very I'm very aware at how how much I suck sometimes and so just like keeping a keeping a real keeping a realistic like uh think about how uh people in the audience people your fans or your followers or whatever they only ever see you at your very very best mm. they only see you when you're on stage and there's lights and smoke and and or when you're in the studio doing a podcast or whatever, they only see you when you're. They don't when you're turned on. Right? Yeah, when yeah. you're on, and and they don't hear y'all don't hear the crappy songs I write because I don't put them out. And and so like when when I think I think you just have to keep perspective of 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 uh, of that and have people around you who who are real people and who who will keep you in check. Not not who will say how lousy you are, but just be <laughs> self aware and try to see yourself. You know how God sees you. Uh, it's like, oh, you wrote a you wrote a, a pretty song. Good for you. I made the whole universe. You know, it's like just kind of, um, yeah, just just keeping that in perspective. And and I think I guess the biggest thing is having having people allowing people close to you who you trust to be able to speak into your life and keep you kind of on the on the on the straight and narrow. Because I, I mean. It's it is kind of a weird thing to deal with, and I think you see it all the time. That's why that's why people get that's why artists get crazy, and why people die when they're twenty seven because they're you know drink themselves to death or, or whatever or drugs or whatever it is because there's these coping mechanisms that you um, that you develop from that. I mean, because I kind of I'm I'm learning the the deeper I get into it, it's like okay, for instance, on tour we just did like a, a East Coast tour, and there was one night where. Um, we did a show in Florida, in Sarah Berkey Square in Florida. There was maybe I don't know eight hundred people there, and then we had to hop in the bus and drive fifteen hours, and then be in Kentucky and do another show the next night. And so, like you're you're off of a high of like eight hundred people being fully engaged with you and your band and digging it. And then you've got to drive through the night and do the same thing over again the next night without sleeping. And so it's like there's a lot of things going on there. There's like there's like the adrenaline of all that of the performance. And then there's uh yeah, it's just a lot there's a lot. And it's like I was driving and and I was like, oh, this is why people do drugs. You know, I could use a line of cocaine right now. Can we say <laughs> like I mean I <laughs> And it's, it right. gave me empathy. I can see how it happens because it's like if you don't have. Luckily, I had a, a pastor from Texas who who uh, who was scared for my health and safety and talked for me on the phone like ten hours just to keep me awake. Okay, so I I don't have to um, turn to substances, but because I have people around me, that's another thing I'm really strict with in my, with my band. Like when when I hire people I, in my contract. It's like if I catch my guys with alcohol at 
at a gig, they're fired immediately, like no questions mm-hmm. asked. Like everybody's sober all the time. Um, and and rehearsals, um, the same way. Like like just because because when you when you start when you start adding substances to all the the crazy stuff that's already going on in your head and your body after a show like that. And then it's just like things never fall good. apart. Yeah, right, things fall apart. Yeah, and so I try to I try to you know do thing you know live a lifestyle that allows me to manage that without artificial artificial things. So here's a question that one of the uh, watchers will ask. This comes from Joshua. Be good, not Johnny. Be good. That's hey Joshua. Yeah, he's um, he's followed me for a long time or a while. So uh, he he has. And this was kind of answered in your story, but I'm curious because uh, you grew up in an acapella church. Why not go that route as opposed to bluegrass? Going to acapella stuff? Yeah. Well, because if you're doing acapella, it's not very, you know, um, I, with one voice as a performer, it just doesn't really work. And it's not really the genre that I li- like really thrive in anyways. Like uh, acapella music, it's going to be more chamber music and and um you know, orchestral stuff. And that's just not my vibe. I really appreciate it and enjoy it, but I've always been too much of a, a, a free spirit to just sing what somebody else wrote down for me to sing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like acapella music, I love, I love church music. I love that in church and like, you know, Handel's music. Like I love classical music, but as far as a performer, it's just not, it's just not me. You know what I mean? Right. So here's a question then. Um, I like to ask all all my Christian brethren this: What is <laughs> what is worship to you? Where do you find yourself worshiping God the most? What what action? What? Ooh, that's a good one. I don't know, man. I think when you're just living your purpose, like doing what you know, doing what you believe God wants you to be doing. Um, to me, that's worship, and so that can be cleaning a toilet, or it can be doing a podcast, or whatever. Um, like this morning, it was Palm Sunday. I wasn't at church this morning. I probably should have been. I think I actually missed communion at my church, which kind of bums me out. But I was, um, there's a guy named Josh Gibble. I just bought a church in Lancaster. Similar to, similar, well, it's, it's a lot nicer than, I mean, it's got stained glass in the works. Very nice church. Um, so I went to visit him this morning. That was worship for me because it was like hanging out with a guy that. Fellowship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, church. This is going to maybe sound bad, but ch- church and worship are sometimes I, I define them differently because for me, the church I go to has more to do with with community. Yes, I worship when I'm at church, but if you only if you expect if you only worship at church yeah. and you only have church when you worship, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, yeah. And so I go to church and because I, I like the guys I go to church with, it's more about the community of it and. And having guys that'll keep you accountable, you know, mm-hmm. like keeping, you know, and by that, I mean, if, if, if they're like, if they see me performing somewhere, they don't think I should be, or, or if I'm neglecting my family because I'm on the road or whatever, just, you need to have people around you who, who have the authority to speak into your life and keep you in check. Mm-hmm. And that's not something our generation wants to really hear or no, do it's much because it's not always fun, but I think it's, it's necessary. It's necessary unless you just want to, and I think people that don't have those people, that kind of community, they go off the deep end. And they're not happy. Yeah, and you're not happy anyways. And I do, I, and I know my own weaknesses well enough to know that I need people like that um, in my life. Yeah. 
So then the last question I'll ask, and then we'll get to we'll we'll get to the Robin to play out. Oh yeah. Uh, what is one of the funniest or worst things that ever happened to you at a gig? <laughs> this was this man this was kind of wild i was i got i got asked to play a sh- uh, a birthday party in west virginia and i didn't have a band at the time i was just doing solo and so um anyways i showed up and this is not a word of a lie but it was it ended up being a revival meeting they had a white tent set up and everything and i had like I didn't have I don't know if I had maybe five gospel songs on the whole set. And I was confused. I was so confused. And they had a this was West Virginia and they had a um they had a, an 8 point buck walking around like a dog. And <laughs> and the that wasn't even the weird part. The weird part was that nobody Acknowledged. Yeah, it was just like, yeah, well, don't you have an eight point buck in your backyard? You know what I mean? It was like kind of <laughs> like that. And so this pastor, so so and the pastor wasn't even the pastor of the church that was running the revival meeting wasn't even the guy that booked me. It was someone that went to that church. And I still don't understand how it happened. But I went up to the pastor and I said, Hey, I mean, I just found out this is a revival meeting. I said, I didn't, I thought it was a birthday party. I prepared for a birthday party. And he said, Well, this is all about saving souls tonight. And I was like, Ooh. Um, anyway, so I made it work, but, but I have this, I drink out of these maple syrup jugs. My brother started a maple syrup and it looks like a moonshine jug, but really it's just, it's just a big glass bottle, but it looks like, but it's just, I don't like drinking out of plastic and I usually need at least a half a gallon during a show. And so that's the convenient thing to use and it's kind of become a shtick. But anyways, I, I, I had this jug on stage and this is West Virginia and I kept swigging this thing, and this the congregation was getting worried, like legitimately getting worried that I was drinking, which to me says way more about them than it does about me. <laughs> and so I kept drinking. I said, "Look, man, this is either water or I can drink you under the table, like because I was, you know, this." Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this little old lady in the front row would not shut up about it, and so I was like, "You know what? You want to smell this? You want to? Do you want to smell my water? Like, you know." So she comes out. So she's, yeah, she wants to smell it. So she uncorks the lid and she sniffs and she goes, woo, like that, like pretended it was moonshine. <laughs> Anyways, and I never got invited back to that particular region of West Virginia. But that was one of the weirder, one of the stranger gigs that I've ever had. Great people. And I, I, I think they still follow me on Facebook. So howdy. I love you guys still if you're watching this. But it, it was definitely one of the weirder things that's happened to me at a gig. So tell me, we're we're gonna get back to uh, the Robin as we play yeah. out here. But tell me, where can people find you and uh, your music and stuff like that? They can find me. At, um, I mean, on on all streaming services, my uh, on Facebook. I've got a YouTube channel. Man, just look up old Conrad Fisher or Conrad Fisher Music. You'll find me anywhere. Um, but yeah, follow me on my socials and uh, to stay updated um about my career and and Ragamuffin Hall and everything that's going on. Um. That's where you can find me. You don't have to look very hard. You don't have to look very hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you do. Well, my name is Corey Rosen. This is the Story Podcast. You can find me and all of my projects at CoreyRosenProductions.com. That's C-O-R-Y-R-O-S-E-N Productions.com. If you like this podcast and you you want to help support me, the best way you can do so is by liking and following the page or sharing this with your friends. 
or in sharing this with your musician friends because i like to have any any sort of musician on, on this show not just not just a uh, conrad fisher <laughs> <laughs> although i love conrad fisher mm-hmm. he's a great guy and so if you want to help me out in any way that's how you can do so you can go over to my website like i said and in the future we're going to be having on a, a rapper from the urban scene here in lancaster tomorrow that's uh, tomorrow at 10 o'clock this uh, Thursday, we're having on my very own college's uh, performance center, the Trust Performing Arts Center, uh, run by Aurelia Hoover, who is a, an incredible person in, in her own right. They, they schedule amazing classical uh, guests that come into uh, the old Fulton Bank downtown, and it's a really great venue, and we're going to learn all about that. This Friday, we have Dustin LeBlanc from West Shore Theater coming in and telling uh, he's the operations, our executive producing uh, he's a top dog over there. <laughs> and uh, we got to learn about what, what all goes on there. And uh, this Saturday, we're having Colt Wilbur come on. Nice. Yeah, Colt Wilbur, a, a really cool uh, country guy. And we're going to learn more about him. With all that said, let's get over to uh, oh, a few things, more things I want to announce. Uh, the story is starting up the Songwriter Studio, at which I. Uh, I told you about it's uh, where I'm getting three or four other musicians around the table. We're going to uh, write a song within an hour and ready to uh, send to the production house and hopefully have an album by the end of the year. That's the goal. Wow. Yeah, that's the yeah right. Wow. <laughs> Indeed. And so if you want to be a part of that, you can go over to our website and find it there. Also, we're doing single and album reviews on the show with other artists in a local area. So if you want to get your stuff reviewed and, and critiqued, you can be a part of that as well. Nice. And we're going to hear about The Robin. Okay, this song, um, my, like I said, I grew up Mennonite and my grandparents were Amish. And even if they didn't have instruments, they were still very, very musical family, like to sing. This is a song that my great-grandma taught my grandma who taught my mom, who taught to me. And I don't know where this thing comes from. I've played it for as many people as I possibly can, and nobody's ever heard it before. Um, The only trace of it I found was in a reader from like 1850 or something. I found some of the like kind of similar words, but not even exact. Anyways, so I've I've put kind of polished it up um, from what I changed the last verse a little bit, but this is the melody that my mom taught me and it's a real real folk song uh it's called the robin and it's one of my favorite songs ever my mom used to sing this to me a lot when i was falling asleep and now i sing it for my son jack so that's the story behind this one and let's listen to the robin oh what is the matter with robin that makes her cry around here all day I think she must be in great trouble, said Swallow to Little Blue Jay. I think she must be in great trouble, said Swallow to Little Blue Jay. I know why the robin is crying, said Ran with sob in her breast a little bold robber has stolen three little blue eggs from her nest a little bold robber has stolen three little blue eggs from her nest 
I think he forgot that from heaven there looks down an all-seeing eye. I think he forgot that our Father hears the little robins cry. I think he forgot that our Father.